the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. Normally we would do so with Brandon Weikert, but he is with um, doing some stuff with his kids today, doing some stuff with his daughters, a back-to-school event. So we'll get to him. Uh, we'll catch up with him later in this week. It's not as if there isn't a lot to catch up with him on. That story of uh, that Russian-Chinese uh, naval adventure towards Alaska it makes one think of um, that old Paul Harvey line, the testing time. They're putting us through a testing time, Russians and Chinese. I was just thinking, I was doing something with Town Hall on this this morning. You think about um, the Cold War, and um, it was really one and a half or two against one on our side. And um, if you think about it, it was because we had China to check the Soviet Union. And I say one and a half rather than two because China just wasn't the power it was then. And it raises the, uh, the whole question of Henry Kissinger's legacy in some respects. We had a big debate about that. We've had a lot of those debates on this show. But whatever you want to say about that, and we can return to it in a minute if you want, it's definitively the case that China is a super mega power now, economically, militarily, otherwise, as is Russia, at least militarily, economically sufficient for now, not an economic superpower. And it's two against one against us. It's not one and a half against one like it was towards the end of the Cold War. It's two against one against us. At a time when our leadership has never been seen as enfeebled and never has been more enfeebled. I mean, when when we make, I suppose, too many laugh lines about the – and we shouldn't make laugh lines about it. It's not, it's not a laughing matter about any human being but, and certainly not the president of the United States. But when, when, we, when we point out the inabilities and the deficient faculties – of our president of the United States. And then you think about second in command, the vice president, Kamala Harris. It's, it's, it's really nothing close to a laugh line. It's a dramatic and deadly serious national security problem. You don't really know enough about the secretary of defense. You don't really know enough about the national security advisor. You don't really know enough about the secretary of state at this point or the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to go to bed the way everyone used to go to bed in this country, which is knowing that you could go to sleep and sleep the peace of the just, and knowing that if there were a crisis in the world, or a crisis that involved the United States, there would be a, a power structure you could rely on based on constitutional lines of authority and competencies of our leadership. You cannot do that now. That, that, that is simply not the case. And whether you in earshot agree with me or not, 
it's demonstrably the case that everyone in the rest of the world knows that, at least the leadership in the rest of the world knows that. And so we're going to be continually tested, I believe. The Chinese tested us with surveillance over the literal United States, literal territory of the United States. They're building a base in Cuba, which is 90 miles off our shores in Florida. And as far as Russia goes, do they have any reason to take us seriously at all? Anyone remember crushing sanctions promised by this president two years ago? Anyone remember reducing the ruble to rubble? Has any of that happened, though we were guaranteed it would be? by this president in our actions to thwart the invasion of Ukraine? No, none of it. Why would they take us seriously at all? Why would we think they think we are anything other than a paper tiger, but without the tiger? We're just paper at this point, it seems to me. And so we are going to be continually tested, and there are going to be closer and closer and closer incursions, whether it's off Alaska or anywhere else. You just... You distinguish that from any previous administration, but certainly the last administration, where they had resumed they, they had resumed missile avoidance tests. They had resumed bomb threat protocols in our schools in Alaska and Hawaii when Barack Obama was president because of North Korea. And all that stopped once Donald Trump became president. You want a president that doesn't put school children through 1960s-era drills and puts fear in their heads instead of math and English and safety. That's, that's what you would want. But you would want something more than that, too. You would want a United States that didn't do its level best to actually also align your two greatest competitors and enemies against you. Now, again, we can debate Henry Kissinger's efforts with China and the certain price that was paid for that. In retrospect, one can justify it even, though it came at a very big price for a lot of freedom and a lot of people. And the conservative movement had a lot of questions and concerns and dissents over and about it. And it perhaps could have been done in a way that didn't come at the expense of, say, Taiwan. China wanted us then. Today, you ask what China wants. It's not an alliance with us. It's not any kind of sanctions on us. It's that they want to take over the role we once played. That's what they want, and they are well on their way to doing it. Now, there's another concern here, and it's hard to put the right words together on it when you think of about when you think about our enemies, be they the Soviet, uh, the, yeah, the legatees of the Soviet Union, be they Russia or China. There is a brutalness, a brutality of their leadership. There is a um, a brutishness and a brutality to their leadership and their fighting ethic that we don't have that we have never had, and that we shouldn't have. The old notion of mutually assured destruction 
worked up until a certain point and worked for a while because it was based on a on a thin reed of similar morality, similar shared moralities about the value of human life. Does that morality obtain with the communist the Chinese Communist Party? Does it obtain with Vladimir Putin? Do you think they care about lives anymore? Do you think mutually assured destruction is a deterrent anymore that works anymore? Do you think it was a good thing that in our efforts to appease Russia in the early days of the Obama administration, we sent Hillary Clinton over there to try and reset relations while Barack Obama, in his first six months of office, dismantled missile defense with the Czech Republic and Poland in an effort to continually appease Putin and establish that reset? Do you think it was a good idea to abandon our allies and our commitment to missile defense two administrations ago? Do you think that left our allies more protected? Do you think that sent a stronger signal to Vladimir Putin and his thugocracy? The efforts that it has taken to put us in, in such a precarious position and our allies in such a precarious position and uniting our enemies against us is an entire inversion of every lesson we thought we learned in winning the Cold War, that long twilight struggle, as John Kennedy spoke of it. And so when I think about these kinds of stories, I expect us to see more of them. I expect to see more testing against us. And I have seen nothing whatsoever that has been said by the State Department or the President of the United States or the Secretary of Defense to thwart or stop any of it. One of the interesting sentences I read in a Wall Street Journal article about that Alaskan incursion to, uh, this morning was that there was no comment from the State Department. I didn't know whether to be relieved that there was no comment or to be ashamed of us because there was no comment. Kind of interesting uh, that uh, the media is continuing to play this game. Um, Ron DeSantis did an interview uh, with NBC News. Uh, he did it with um, Dasha Burns. If I'm not mistaken, Dasha Burns was the journalist who blew the whistle on John Fetterman, now that I think about it. She's the one that, during the campaign for Senate, said something's not right there. And she earned the wrath and enmity of her fellow journalists for publicizing what they had all done their best to cover up. You know, that John Fetterman was indeed unwell. They were doing their best to say everything's just fine. She did an interview with him and said everything is not just fine. Anyway, she did an interview with Ron DeSantis today, not someone you need to cover for, like uh, the media did with John Fetterman. Be interesting, by the way, to see John Fetterman do a sit-down interview, long-form interview with a, with a journalist. I got a fundraising email from him over the weekend. It opened with, hey, like 10 E's, like, hey, like he had just finished finished a uh a round of of drinks or 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 smoking with uh, some, uh pot smoking with some friends he just likes to nurture that 
weird image. I, I don't know why. I guess I guess it hasn't hurt him yet. In any event, Dasha Burns uh, sat down with Ron DeSantis, and rather than interview him, she decided to argue with him. And it's just it's it's just not the kind of thing you see with Democrats when they sit down with corporate media or legacy media. And it's also part and parcel of this whole new notion of journalism, which is to shape the news, not report the news. This one, this area had to do with the issue of abortion. Let me see if I can get a little of the um, audio on it here. Veto any sort of federal bill that tries to put a nationwide ban in place. So we will be a pro-life president and and we will support pro-life policies. Um, I would not allow uh, what a lot of the left wants to do, which is to override pro-life protections throughout the country all the way up really until the moment of birth in some instances which i think is is infanticide uh, well actually not- i gotta push back on you on that because that that's a, a misrepresentation of, of what's happening i mean that 1.3 percent of abortions happen at 21 weeks or higher there's no, no right. evidence of democrats pushing for but, but their view up is until- their view is is that all the way up into that Yet there should not be any legal protections. Uh, there is no in the indication end. of yeah, Democrats right. pushing you're, you're for right. that. Well, yes, the- Much of the dis- yes, there is. Yes, there is. Every Democrat that ran in 2022 refused to put a time limit in every single debate, whether they were running for governor or whether they were running for Senate. It happened here in Arizona. It happened here in Pennsylvania. It happened in every single race. Not one single Democratic candidate said that they would put a condition or a stop to late-term abortions, not even up to the point of birth, not even after the point of birth. Dasha Burns is just simply wrong. Now, they moved on to the next issue right away, as you could see there, so who knows what Ron DeSantis said in any pushback but or in any response. But let's talk about that 1.3% of abortions that takes place in the latter parts of pregnancy. Can we? Can we talk about it? Why is it problematic for Republicans to raise that issue, even if it is the vast minority of abortions, even if it's, you know, between 1% and 2% of abortions, when Republicans are continually berated for, in some states, not allowing for exceptions of rape and incest? Do you know what percent of abor- uh, of pregnancies are, or abortions are sought for rape and incest? Do you know? Do you have an idea? It's far less. It's far less. If you look at the Gottmacher Institute, which is uh, run by uh, Planned Parenthood, but is taken as the most serious and most rigorous analysis of abortion statistics in America, it's... according to a 2004 study. But a later survey from the Guttmacher Institute says that that looks like that number may have been inflated and that the actual numbers were 0.3% in cases of rape and three-tenths of a percent in cases of incest, not even 1%. Not even 1%. So why is that always the issue? And yet, we can't discuss late-term abortions now, which, which are at least three times as frequent. Now, that is its own argument. Let me give you another one from the Washington Examiner. 
And it shows, I think, basically either a callousness towards life or a ridiculousness and absurdity about public policy. Legacy media outlets continue to claim that late-term abortions are rare, and yet the numbers show they are far less rare than the police shootings or shootings committed with assault weapons that they obsess over. Dasha Burns, in an interview with Governor Ron DeSantis, said it was, quote, misrepresentation of what's happening to talk about how Democrats want to allow abortion up to birth, which is the stated position of Democratic politicians, even in swing states, because late-term abortions only make up 1.3% of all abortions. Wherever Burns pulled that 1.3% number from, let's take it as true. According to the Gottmacher Institute, which was founded by Planned Parenthood, there were 930,160 abortions in 2020 and 916,460 in 2019. If you take the lesser, the 2019 number, and Burns' 1.3% figure, you end up with an estimation that there were over, there were almost 12,000, there were 11,914 late-term abortions in 2019. Now, let's turn to the media's other pet issues. According to the FBI, there were 364 homicides in 2019 perpetrated with rifles, which includes AR-15s and all the assault weapons outlets like NBC, and, and all the assault weapon outlets like NBC are obsessed with. In other words, there were 32 times more late-term abortions in 2019 than there were gun deaths by assault weapons plus other rifles. Would NBC dare to fact-check a Democrat on gun control by saying assault weapons deaths are rare? You'd have to be kidding me. In fact, there were 10,258 total gun homicides in 2019, which means our estimation of late-term abortions, using the Guttmacher Institute and Dasha Burns' own numbers, is higher than the total number of deaths from gun violence. Remember that the next time NBC laments gun violence in America. There's more. I want to do it in a few moments. But all of a sudden, this notion that in the middle of an interview, it's for the reporter It's for the interviewer, it's for the journalist to engage in a debate with Ron DeSantis. I understand he's supposed to be debating Gavin Newsom and he's preparing for a debate against fellow Republicans for the nomination of the presidency on August 23rd. I just didn't think it was the role of NBC to be doing this. There's a larger point here. I'm not carrying a brief for DeSantis on this or whining. There is a larger point. You'll let me get to it in a moment. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Dasha Burns of NBC decided to engage in a debate with Ron DeSantis when he said Democrats won't put any restrictions on late-term abortions. She said, A, that wasn't true, and B, they only make up 1.3% of all abortions, which, using the Gottmacher Institute's figures, is is almost 12,000 abortions a year. They don't care about those 12,000. That may be one thing. But she was trying to make it seem like a very small number. But that is what the math bears out to be. Over 11,900 abortions a year, late term. And yes, it is true. Not a single Democrat I know of running for office for governor or Senate in 2022 would on a debate stage or or anywhere else say that they would put a stop to them. That they would, in fact, what they did say was that they would, in fact, stand for all abortion rights at every and all times. 
But the point of this Washington Examiner piece I'm reading to you is what it is that the media does seem to care about. Is it numbers or is it morality? Is it numbers or is it life? According to the Washington Post police shooting database, there have been 8,660 police shootings since 2015. And that's shootings, just all shootings. 8,660 police shootings since 2015. We're not talking against unarmed people. We're not talking about certain against certain races. Total, 8,660 8, police shootings since 2015. In other words, there were more late-term abortions in 2019 than there have been police shootings over the past eight years. What's the media focused on? In 2019, there were 997 people shot by police, 251 of which were black. What do you think would happen if NBC fact-checked the Black Lives Matter movement by saying the police shootings of black men, which were 3,705 times less common in 2019 than late-term abortions, were rare? What do you think the outcry would be? NBC would never do that because the outlaw is all aboard on the narrative trains for both gun control activists and Black Lives Matter. And yet, in both cases, the calculation for late-term abortions show that there are far more they are far more common than police shootings or assault weapon deaths. Burns and other figures at NBC and other le- legacy media outlets would only describe one of those things as rare, though, because only one of them makes their political narratives look bad. I said I was trying to make a larger point here, and I do want to make a larger point here. I've been kind of on a kick on this of late, and it's about the role of the media. It's the former president of CNN, then outgoing president of CNN, put it. We're here to not report the news, but to shape the news. That's a huge tell, and it's a huge explanation of what's going on with media in America. Do you realize not one Sunday show, not one Sunday network show, not NBC, not ABC, not CBS yesterday had a single story on Devon Archer Hunter Biden's business associate, not one of them. Not one of them. It's pretty big testimony that he gave to the House Oversight Committee earlier in the week. So when they're not shaping the news in a positive sense by arguing with Republican candidates and putting out narratives that don't quite hold the water they think it does, they're burying it. They're bearing it. It works in both directions. It works in a positive direction. It works in a negative direction. We used to say most media bias is in what is not covered. It's not quite true anymore. It's It's in what's not covered, and it's in what they distort. Interesting, isn't it, at the end of the day, that that 1.3% in one year is more than everything they seem to care about over the course of many years, whether it's police shootings or assault rifle and, and long rifle deaths or whether it's anything else they seem to care about. I'm against all those things. I want them all reduced. But you can't have a culture of peace and you can't have a culture of life if you only care about certain forms of violence In fact, when Jesse Jackson wrote about abortion in 1977, he asked 
before he changed his mind for political purposes when he decided to run for president, he asked the question in the Human Life Review in 1977, what kind of culture of violence are we creating in this country when we can treat unborn life so casually? This kind. Make a bigger point about the media when we come right back. David, I don't understand what you have a pro- why you have a problem with that voice. I just don't understand it. I, it it will be part of the enigma of David Dahl, okay. the the one person in America who doesn't like Dolly Parton. I kind of like having an air of mysteriosity about me. Though. I understand that you like having an air of mysteriosity about you. Yeah, but the mysteriosity should be about not liking others, not Dolly not Parton. Not liking others. Yeah, not liking. It doesn't play well with Dolly Parton. I mean, it's just there's nothing. More American and better than Dolly Parton and that voice. I, I almost would go so far as to say if you hate Dolly Parton, you hate America. Uh-oh. I'd almost go that far. Uh-oh. I was making a point about journalism. I've quoted from the journalist's creed here and there. I haven't done the whole thing in a long time. Just to show you how far we've traveled in 100 years of journalistic ethics, I wanted to read you the whole thing. This is what journalism used to be about. This was the creed. It's still posted at the National Press Club. It was written by a professor, really the first dean of journalism at the Missouri School of Journalism in 1908. As I say, it's still posted at the National Press Club, has been since the Eisenhower administration. I don't know if it means anything anymore. been making a point a lot lately about things that are written down that sound great, but aren't put into practice. Think about our Constitution for a moment. It only, it only works and it only matters if we follow it and obey it, right? So too a creed. Here's the journalist's creed. I believe in the profession of journalism. I believe that the public journal is a public trust, that all connected with it are, to the full measure of their responsibility, trustees for the public, that acceptance of a lesser service than the public service is betrayal of this trust. I believe that clear thinking and clear statement, accuracy, and fairness are fundamental to good journalism. I believe that a journalism should, excuse me, I believe that a journalist should write only what he holds in his heart to be true. I believe that suppression of the news for any consideration other than the welfare of society is indefensible. Suppression of the news is indefensible. I believe that no one should write as a journalist what he would not say as a gentleman. That bribery by one's own pocketbook is as much to be avoided as bribery by the pocketbook of another. That individual responsibility may not be escaped by pleading another's instructions or another's dividends. I believe that advertising, news, and editorial columns should alike serve the best interests of readers. That a single standard of helpful truth and cleanness should prevail for all. That the supreme test of good journalism is the measure of its public service. Now here's the end. It's almost poetry. It's almost the kind of poetry that's been forgotten. I believe that the journalism which succeeds best and best deserves success fears God and honors man, is stoutly independent, unmoved by pride of opinion or greed of power, constructive, tolerant, but never careless, self-controlled, patient, always respectful of its readers, but always unafraid, is quickly indignant at injustice, 
is unswayed by the appeal of privilege or the clamor of the mob, seeks to give every man a chance, and as far as law and honest wage and recognition of human brotherhood can make it so, an equal chance, is profoundly patriotic while sincerely promoting international goodwill and cementing world comradeship. It is a journalism of humanity of and for today's world. Now, that's, that's a lot to ask for, but that is what the profession used to believe was, it, was, was its creed. Patriotic. Again, it's a lot to ask for. Fears God. A lot to ask for. I would just be happy if we could live by one sentence in that long creed of the journalists. The sentence that reads, I believe that suppression of the news for any consideration other than the welfare of society is indefensible. Now, they're not going to have any shame about any of this because they think that they are acting on behalf of the welfare of society in what they do, whether they're shaping the news or whether they're suppressing it. That is what they think. They think that it is their job and that the welfare of society is determined by promoting left-wingism or liberalism or anything that defeats Republicans. That's what their view of the welfare of society is. That's how they sleep at night. They believe they have a bigger cause than just reporting it straight and letting people make up their own mind. They believe that there should only be one reign of rule in this country and that anything considered conservative or to the right shouldn't be part of it and is opposed to, is opposite, is contrary to the welfare of society. That's how they think. That's what they truly think. And it was fascinating to me when I was kind of looking at some of the journalistic, excuse me, the journalists, the journalist schools here in Arizona, the big one, the Cronkite School at ASU, it was fascinating to me that they have no courses on opinion editorial journalism. They have no courses on commentary journalism. And it's fascinating to me because newspapers still have op-ed pages. They even have op-ed departments and op-ed editors. But no one is teaching incoming journalists the distinction between news and opinion. And that's the real essence of the problem. Because to them, there really is no distinction. The op-ed pages and the main news stories are no more distinct than the weather bubble or the weather pages or the sports pages or the stock pages or anything else. It's all the same thing to them. It's just, do you, by the way, <laughs> a lot of people get this wrong, kind of interesting, and it doesn't really matter too terribly much, but do you know what op-ed stands for, David? I would have assumed opinion editorial. Yeah, most people do assume that. It's not exactly right. It really means opposite editorial page because the newspaper would take an editorial stance and then they would have the opinions opposite the editorial page. Now there's nothing opposite to anything in the newspaper. It's all singularly and unilaterally directed. Call it what you want, but it's not journalism. You think about the administration and the economy with the bank failures and the stock market's volatility and speculation about a recession and inflation, which we see and feel and know daily. 
What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market to any of that? Well, why refi has that? They have a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. No loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. And as I say, not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Why Refi. And blessedly, they're headquartered right here in Scottsdale. They encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there, and you won't get a sales pitch. You won't have anyone asking you to sign anything. They just like talking about what it is that they do. But when you meet the team at White Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. White Refi is a due diligence-approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. I I suppose I'll close with this since I opened this hour talking a little bit about the president and the vice president. The defense of Kamala Harris now is, as predicted, um, the defense of to criticize her as racist. Renee Graham at the Boston Globe wrote, quote, why are Republicans so obsessed with Kamala Harris? CNN noted Republican presidential candidates are increasingly making Vice President Kamala Harris their prime target, focusing on the number two Democrat rather than President Joe Biden. Well, why are Republicans increasingly focusing on and so obsessed with Harris is a fair question. It's a question worth asking. I don't think it's true that we're more focused on her than Joe Biden. I don't think that can possibly be true. But because of our concerns over Joe Biden, of course we have to think about the number two. Columnist at the Washington Examiner says, it's not just us who are focused on her. The White House is also focusing on Kamala Harris. The Biden administration is sending Harris out as an attack dog, including to Florida, to stump against Governor Ron DeSantis to keep the president above the fray. I'm old enough to remember in the campaign of 2020 how much we were supposed to support the Biden-Harris ticket because of her race. Does it only work in one direction? It does, because we're not criticizing her because of her race. I know people supported her because of her race. We're not criticizing her because of her race. I haven't heard a single Republican do that. I haven't heard a single conservative do that. I've heard us criticize her because of her incompetence. And incompetence, sorry to report to the children and adult bodies, can operate irrespective of race. Okay, folks, thanks for spending and start uh, your Monday here. Start your week with us until tomorrow. I'm Seth. He's David Dahl. God bless you all, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.